0: This year has been all about success and making things happen. As new opportunities emerge, we've learned the importance of embracing every minute. Whether it's launching a book, starting a new business, growing our team, or anything else we can dream about, U.S. Bank is here to help us meet our milestones and thrive in the moment.
1: And I know we're not the only ones. Anyone out there listening who also may have a renewed taste for success, take this as a sign. This is the time to take the leap towards success and make your dreams come true. The combination of U.S. Bank's humanness, helpfulness, and friendly expertise makes them stand apart. They are in your corner to help you take control of your finances and get you on the path to thriving. If you've got goals, hopes, and dreams, visit usbank.com to make them happen. U.S. Bank is an equal opportunity lender and member FDIC.
0: The really good ones can speak with like crystal clear clarity about what it makes them unique and what makes a particular brand competitive. What we used to refer to as meaningfully different. Yes. For example, it's one thing to say we have a globally recognized brand with over 400 locations. (laughs) If you don't know anything, you're like, wow, they're recognized globally. They've got hundreds of locations around the world. That's fantastic. That's amazing. But then you have someone who may say, like, we have a cult following, right? Like a cult following, Mm -hmm. right? You buy into us, you're buying into the hundreds of thousands or the millions of people who will go out of their way to buy our product. The first thing that I can think of, which sounds crazy, but is like the Cherry Limeade, the crystal thing. Granted, I've never had it. I've never had it. (laughs)
1: Welcome to the Rich and Regular Podcast presented by Success, where we explore life at the intersection of money. I'm Kirsten.
0: And I'm Julian. And today... We're talking about franchising.
1: Yes, franchising. Yes. We have not covered this topic at all.
0: So long story, um, which I will tell very briefly. Yeah. I started <laughs> to talk about this about three years ago. Um,
1: before we had the podcast.
0: Way before we had the podcast. <laughs> so I yeah, I, I, wanted to talk about it on the blog. We never got around to it. But there are a couple of reasons why we're choosing to talk about it today. Uh, there might be three, maybe four you know we don't oh, do this here we go it's at least 3 so the first reason is because we were just on a podcast while we were promoting our book with George and Carter uh, as the Melanin Money Podcast. And we were having an exchange and they were sharing with us how they had early ambitions to own a Smoothie King. And the light bulbs went off because I was like, oh my gosh. One, I was like, remember Smoothie King? I remember like breaking the whole thing down. We wanted to own a Smoothie King, several Smoothie Kings a few years ago. Uh, So that was the first reason that made me think of it. The second reason is... Because I'm a part of a Facebook group and all of a sudden they started talking about franchising. It was almost like it had got a resurgence as people were thinking about other ways to make money. And I think they're right because they were saying people have kind of forgotten about franchising. Like, we've gotten so obsessed with investing and real estate and all these other things, options trading, that people have forgotten that, like, franchising is a great way and one of the more proven ways a lot of people have helped, uh, have built wealth over the last couple of years. And so I was like, wow, that's like another reminder. And then the other day, uh, one of our other colleagues, Devon Reeves, um, she just launched a crowdsourcing platform Mm -hmm. with the intent of – trying to increase the number of Black-owned hotel owners in the United States, which is something that I also wanted to be at some point Mm -hmm. because we were working for a hotel franchisor. So I was getting all these signs from the universe. And speaking of universe, NASA just released all these really great pictures. I know. So So I was like, this is like all coming together. (laughs) You know, the universe is sending me signs. You know
1: what? Don't try to be woo-woo. Leave the woo-woo to me. My
0: crystal. No.
1: I don't know. (laughs) Anyway.
0: I was just like, you know what? Let's just go ahead and like dust off this topic. Let's bring it back. Let's talk about it. Because we're actually like pretty (laughs) like familiar with this industry and this process. This is where we met. We both spent like, you know, between the two of us, what, 20 years Mm -hmm. working in the franchise business. So we understand it very clearly. Obviously, it's a great way for people to make money and build wealth. So that's why we're talking about it today.
1: Yeah. I remember owning a Smoothie King being a huge goal of ours. In fact, oh, yeah. George and I used to talk about it. And like, even when you and I would go to other cities, we'd see if there was one close to our hotel. And we spent all this time trying to anticipate things like, I wonder what percentage of their oh, yeah. customers there, are like doing foot traffic. Yep. Yeah. Versus, you know, drive up. So we try to understand what location we wanted for ours. But that that is a dream deferred mm-hmm. <laughs> but we do know several people who own franchises today i have a cousin who owned a wing stop in a college town for a little while yep. and a woman that we used to work with used her bonus one year to open a really popular accessory store near the office and
0: i was going to add amanda
1: yeah amanda yeah the with a coffee, coffee shop, shop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so it was a serious goal for us and now, I think our perspective on franchising has shifted a bit, even though today we're at more of a point now where we could qualify for several options if we wanted to uh, than we have is... been in the past. But it's not, you know, I wouldn't say it's completely off the table. It's the like if the right deal came along, we'd consider it earnestly. But we have so many more competing responsibilities <laughs> today and therefore are way more protective of our time that... It would have to be the right deal to get me as excited as I was 10 years ago.
0: So let me just say this. Going back, right, to 10 years ago, because again, if you're the type of person who's ever thought about franchising or explored it, and you were probably just like us over 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. and you're looking at like the net worth requirements and all this money, like... You just no way! Immediately close the window. <laughs> immediately, like, okay, no, no, this is, <laughs> yeah. not, this is not something that will ever happen. And here we are today. To your point, like eh, I mean, we could, but yeah. I don't know if I want to. And so I'm just sharing this that. Where not partnerships to brag, come in, but like, to say, you yeah, know, it, it, the stuff, some of the stuff you can't really see. Yeah, you've yeah, got to yeah. go through the ground a little bit. You've got to do some other things, whether it's stock markets, investing, etc., to get to a point where you can then say, oh wow, well actually. I could do that, but it's not an option. But not here to dissuade you. I'm actually here just to kind of do a little bit of myth-busting and education. This particular podcast is not going to be... That sounds like an ad. This particular podcast (laughs) is not going to be... It's uh, an anti-ad. It's an anti-ad. No, this is not going to be like some comprehensive breakdown of franchising one-on-one, because honestly, like we don't have time for that. And it's (laughs) such... A huge, huge business. So we're going to speak about it on a high level. You'll probably learn some things you didn't know already. Um, So first things, it just makes sense to start with like definitions, like basic definitions. So what is a franchise? So a franchise is just a method of distributing products or services. In other words, it's a business. It could be a store. It could be a a restaurant, a fitness studio. Massage parlor. Massage parlor, you name it. Like any of those. (laughs) My mind immediately went to the no, I know. As soon as I, I like, said I parlor, mean, I was like, why would parlor? I say that? <laughs> yeah. It could be any one of those things. Um, you might also be familiar with the term chain. People mm-hmm. typically use the term chain when it comes to restaurants and then they say, yuck. But <laughs> chains don't have to be franchises. They could be. So don't yeah. get the two confused. You can be a chain and not a franchise. The core difference is really about Ownership. So continuing along those lines, let's define what it means to be a franchisor, a franchisor. So a franchisor, O-R, is the entity or the company who establishes the business's brand, trademark, their systems, the marketing strategy, maybe the agreements that they have with suppliers to get the ingredients and things that they need to create the go to the service. Like that's what the franchisor is. That's the big company. So Marriott Hotels is a franchisor. Smoothie King, as we've mentioned. Wendy's um planet fitness mm-hmm. uh kuman, which mm-hmm. is one of my favorites and yeah, I know that's been on my list too I kuman know, I know at, so
1: many teachers that would be great I know kuman I, I centers. literally
0: was just about to say that yeah like this is also one of the reasons why we're talking about this because yeah. I want all the aspiring teachers who are burnt out to pool their resources together yeah and, open and a apply kuman. their skills open preferably near
1: our home yeah
0: do that <laughs> and change your life for the better But basically, these companies, these entities, they own the name, they own the logo, they own uh, all of the intellectual property, they have the contractual agreements that are required to help bring that brand or franchise experience to life. And so, you as a, this is your next term, franchisee, is the person who is paying a fee to license the ability to use those things, right? Mm -hmm. So, you're typically going to pay an initial fee that's going to be like your application fee. And then there may be, this honestly, there may be hundreds of fees if we're being honest, yeah. but the big ones that they're going to talk about are going to be like your application fee, um, And when you get approved, you basically have the abilities or the license to use everything that that brand, that system, that franchisor has to offer. So when we talk about franchising, we're really just talking about the contractual relationship between those two primary parties who are both owners in their own right. Correct. The franchisor owns the rights to those systems and all those things we spoke about, and you as a franchisee, the person who has licensed it, owns the ability to use those things. And you may actually own the actual property that helps to bring all of those things to life.
1: Yeah. Now, the benefits of franchising are obvious and not so obvious, or at least underrated. The obvious ones are brand recognition. You've all been there. If you get off on an exit during a road trip and see the golden arches of a McDonald's next to a Bob's Burger Shack (laughs) or something more local and unique, The likelihood that you go with what you know and have seen in the past is really high. So franchises take advantage of pooling all of the money from their owners into this large marketing spend. And as a result, they can buy media that you as an individual storefront wouldn't typically have access to. And that's how they develop this brand recognition that just kind of scales their business with very little effort from the operator. Yep. They also have lower failure rates because of the network of support and advice that you get as a part of this group of franchisees. And they're considered lower risk than a typical business. So if you join a franchise that exists in multiple markets and is under an established parent brand, it can make it easier to access loans and capital at a more agreeable rate than if you were a solo business, right? Because in the case of a loan, the lender has far more data, far more evidence that this is a successful venture and they feel comfortable loaning you money at a fair rate. Yep. And I think one of the biggest barriers for small business expansions is the money that it costs to grow. So expanding as a franchisee where you get these you know, cheap access to capital kind of allows you to share the burden with the franchisor of growth.
0: Yes. Now, I want to take a step back here because you actually use a term that we didn't define. You said parent brand. Mm. And that is another sort of piece of franchising jargon that you could actually say is the same as franchisor in most cases, right? So Marriott, using that as an example, is a parent brand, Mm -hmm. meaning it is the mother brand. It is the one, and then there are sub-brands underneath it. Brands like Residence Inn or Courtyard are all sub-brands that you can franchise under the parent brand of Marriott. Now, Marriott is unique in the sense that Marriott is also the parent company. right, And so the parent (laughs) company Marriott, which you can own shares in, has a parent brand, which is its own brand with its own unique set of offerings called Marriott Hotels. And then underneath that, they've got like dozens of (laughs) other brands. So it can get a little complicated. It is honestly just as bad, probably not as bad, but comparable to like consumer products right so procter and gamble is a company that is also a parent brand but it's not a consumer facing brand it has hundreds of other brands everything from like toilet paper and paper products to chemical products etc so that's like hopefully the last piece of jargon (laughs) and we're probably going to use them interchangeably right yeah we've been in it so long between parent brand and You know, franchisor. It can get really, really confusing, especially if this is all new to you. So, boom. Okay, so we were talking about upsides and downsides. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the downsides because Kirsten always gives me the negative (laughs) things to talk about (laughs) while she wants to talk about the good things. So. I spoke a little bit about this. Uh, the upfront costs is can be like honestly a little little scary, a little jarring. So not only do you have to meet like minimum net worth requirements and have liquid cash requirements on deck, most well-known franchises have an application fee. And then if you're approved and you sign an agreement, there's an initial franchise fee. And then. Once you've opened your business, there are ongoing licensing fees and royalty payments. So most of the time, those ongoing fees are expressed as a percentage of sales. So you make a million dollars this year. You may need to pay the parent brand, the franchisor, or that's probably the typical language that we would use, a percentage of that. Maybe yeah. it's 2%, 5%. It just kind of depends on the brand. Um, and sometimes it depends on the sub-brand. Some sub-brands have higher um royalty fees or licensing fees than others. But again, that's not it. Like, no. <laughs> after that, you've got marketing assessment fees, you've got service fees, you've got Technology fees, yeah, training fees, fees, special programs, mm-hmm. if you want them to actually manage the business, you know, they're going to charge you all of that as well. So don't get looped into the hype that, oh, all you have to pay is a percentage of yeah, sales, just do 3%. some back of the napkin math yeah, no. and then think that you're going to keep 97% of it. Yeah, like no. There are all of these other operating costs. Not to mention labor, which is a mm-hmm. big one, because most of these businesses do require labor, managers, employees, frontline, et cetera, to do all that stuff. OK, so that's a downside, but it is a very big one. The second one is like restrictions and brand standards. And you can actually see this as a double sided thing. I think the positive side to brand standards is that you can ensure that whatever you're doing is going to be pretty close, if not exactly the same as what somebody else might experience at another franchise. So whether I'm staying at your hotel or someone else's hotel, I can rest assured that I'm going to have the same type of bed sheets or that you're going to have the same kind of lotion or soap in the bathroom. So you can get a long leash as an owner. And by that, I mean, you've got a lot of flexibility to try. Freedom
1: within the framework. Ooh,
0: that's what they used to call it. <laughs> yes. Freedom within the framework. And it's like, oh, you've got freedom to run around in this box. <laughs> Like you can pick whichever color you want out of these three. It's like, oh okay. That's not necessarily freedom, but within the framework, right?
1: Oh corporate jargon.
0: (laughs) Depending on the franchise agreement, you do not get to decide everything that can be done with that business. And so one of the easiest examples for those of you who love Chick-fil-A, I'm sure there was a time where you wanted some Chick-fil-A on a Sunday.
1: Yes, Lord. And I'm
0: sure there was a time where an owner of a Chick-fil-A wanted to serve you some Chick-fil-A <laughs> on, on a, a Sunday, Sunday <laughs> but they can't. Why? <laughs> they can. Because the brand says no. That's yeah. not what they do. Their brand standard is that they are closed on Sunday, no matter
1: I what. I know there's some Chick-fil-A next to an NFL stadium that's just like, man, next it's game day. I could, <laughs> Maybe we could cook the sandwiches on Saturday. No.
0: In a hospital. Yeah, it no. doesn't matter. Mm-mm. right? So while they believe that you can earn money that way, they want to make sure that they stick true to their brand standards for their reasons. As the owners of that brand and that business, they're entitled to do that. That's one example, but there are literally thousands of examples of things that you may feel that you should do or can do or actually might even be required to do due to your local government or code or your number one client even. Doesn't matter. You cannot do it if it against the particular brand standard. So that's oftentimes a downside. So Kirsten spoke a little bit about having the network or a network of fellow owners of people that you can mix and mingle with other franchisees. Uh, and that is a huge perk, but sometimes there's a downside to that. You might be in a situation where one of those franchisees does something that they are allowed to do or maybe not allowed to do. And there's a little bit of blowback that has a negative effect on you as a franchisee. I'm gonna use the Chick-fil-A example for uh um, just just to keep it consistent. Let's say one Chick Fil A owner decides to participate in their local pride parade, mm-hmm. and that upsets the other Chick Fil A owner because they have a completely different set of political views, mm-hmm. and they don't believe that that's something that they should be doing, and they're concerned that that's going to have an impact on their business because they're the Chick Fil A that's five miles down the road or something like that. Right. These things happen all the time, right? It could be any other way. It could be that the parent brand decides that they're going to host a NFL commercial. Yeah, and you or donate
1: to a political party. Or donate party. to
0: a political party, right? Like these things happen all the time. They create conflict between owners. They create conflict sometimes between the franchisee and the franchisor. And so, again, it is just the costs of doing business. Yeah, right? there's
1: very little you can do because again, you don't own it. Nope. You're just licensing it. And so outside of a very expensive lawsuit, there's not much you can do to resolve the conflict and you just have to learn to exist within it. Yep. But that's actually a really great segue into the things that we look for when we're evaluating an opportunity. And one of the first things that we look at is the leadership team. Yes. So when you purchase a franchise, you're not just purchasing the rights to use their brand and systems, you're also buying into their thinking. You're purchasing the thought leadership, air quotes, (laughs) of the people behind the brand. And so it's important to do some due diligence in this area by researching their backgrounds to understand what they're experiencing experience, skill sets, whether they at least whether they're at least acknowledged as leaders in their respective category because if there are, there should be no shortage of testimonials Team reviews, press releases, news clippings, industry panels, panels, publications,
0: conferences, spokespeople for the brand.
1: Anything that cites the work that they've done should be readily available to you. And if you're having a hard time finding this information, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not capable of doing a good job, but it may mean that they're inexperienced and you need to adjust your expectations and kind of negotiate accordingly.
0: Yeah, that is, and that might sound like a softball. But if that feels like, oh, well, that's obvious... I can assure you. I remember very early in my corporate career, again working for a global and well-known franchisor, um, going to a development conference, which are these types of conferences that you go to if you are a prospective franchisee. And I remember watching or sitting in on a workshop where they were interviewing experienced multi-unit franchise owners, and they were asking them for advice. And that was the first one that he said. And I remember writing that down, like, "Come on, man, get to the real stuff. Get to the numbers. Get to the thing that nobody Nobody else knows. And then now looking back, like thinking back on my career and I was like, actually, that is one of the most important things because you have to think about it this way. You're not just buying the brand. Part of what makes that brand um, so good, so powerful isn't just like that the agreements and the contracts and the brand resonance it's the leadership. It's the people behind it. It's the people who've been doing it for 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. They know all the problems. They've already solved all the problems. And they're basically passing on all of that wisdom to you Mm -hmm. as a franchisee. And so it's really something that you want to take stock of and make sure that you um, do that research. Again, we're not saying if they're not a rock star, don't invest in the brand. But there is something to be said for brands where the leadership has been quoted, has been mentioned. They're a seasoned veteran Mm -hmm. versus someone who may not necessarily have done that. They're a newbie on the job because you're buying into that newbie uh, as well. Yeah. Okay. So once you have a good grip on the leadership, the next thing you want to do is uh, take that same mentality and apply it to the business model itself. So franchisors and brands are Like they're predominantly sales and marketing people, right? We were sales, literally sales and marketing people. That means that they are skilled at painting like really beautiful, picturesque pictures of what makes their brand great. Dot 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 on paper, Right. right? The really good ones can speak with like crystal clear clarity about what. Makes them unique and what makes a particular brand competitive, yeah, what we used to refer to as meaningfully different. Yes. For example, it's one thing to say we have a globally recognized brand with over four hundred locations. Great. <laughs> if you don't know anything, you're like, Wow, they're recognized globally. They've got hundreds of locations around the Ooh, world. That's la, fantastic. La. That's amazing. But then you have someone who may say, like we have a cult following. Right. Like a cult following. Mm-hmm. Right? You buy into us, you're buying into the hundreds of thousands of the millions of people who will go out of their way to buy our product. The first thing that I can think of, which sounds crazy, but is like the Cherry Limeade the crystal yes. thing. Oh, granted, I've sonic. never had it. I've never had it. Not crystal, Sonic.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've it never is the ice. It,
0: but I know what it is.
1: It's the I, First of all, yes, shout out to the Sonic People eaters. will go out of their way. <laughs> yes, the, to go get some Sonic ice. When I was pregnant, that's all I wanted was Sonic ice. And like, I would only ask for a little bit of cherry limeade. But yeah, it's it's worth driving to. I
0: hear people talk about Dairy Queen the same way. Yep. Like when they realize that there's a Dairy Queen here. Oh, yeah, we got to stop. They, we got to go to a Dairy Queen.
1: <laughs> or Bucky's.
0: <laughs> Buckies, where is that? Is that a t- Texas thing, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I think they're across the south. It's okay. not just in Texas.
0: Yeah, I only know it because a lot of your
1: friends. Yeah, a talks lot of yeah. It.
0: Yeah, but again, cult following. Cult right, following. people will be driving and on their way through the state, but if they see it, they're gonna stop. To Kirsten's point, using the example of Bob's Burger and McDonald's, right? So those are the kinds of things that you really want to be mindful of. And that can be kind of difficult to quantify, but Mm -hmm. that's where um, having conversations with owners... Asking people who are real customers and not just relying on the sales and marketing contact or materials or the website to be the thing that guides your decision. It's their yeah. job to make their brand sound like the best thing since sliced bread. It's your job as a person who's getting ready to spend hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on a franchise, to find out whether or not that is real. To literally yeah. go taste the cherry lime, mm-hmm. whatever frozen <laughs> slushy thing that she used to have when our... Child. <laughs>
1: he turned out fine. Oh,
0: that explains so much.
1: <laughs> but I like your point. I think the point you were trying to make here is that it's a little bit of art and science, and this is the art part. You want to find the thing that matters, something that excites you as the owners, but honestly, something that's also going to intimidate your competitors a little bit. Like, that's a key to doing well in this business. Can we be... just
0: interrupt for one second? Sure. The other really great benefit of cult cult them is that you don't have to over market to those people no. like once they are woven into it you don't have to continue to market them they're going to remember it they're going to seek it out they don't need a coupon No, nope. it doesn't matter it's like crack <laughs> crack you will never get a coupon
1: for crack because oh, if Lord. you want it you're on it
0: Okay, so the third thing that you want to consider when you are evaluating whether or not the franchise life or franchisee life is for you is the business life cycle. And I'm getting back into my grad school, MBA days here, right? So the business life cycle. So what does that mean? It just means you want to evaluate where the brand is in the span of time. Like, are they a newbie brand that's trying to break into the space and they're gung-ho, willing to do things that are wild and crazy? Are they a mature brand, one that's been around for 10 years that everybody knows and loves and can now charge a premium because they're the best at what they do? Or are they a kind of old brand that's been around for decades and people have kind of fallen out of love with it and they're struggling to reintroduce that brand to this new set of, of 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 potential customers or a new region in some cases. Typically, a franchisor that is small or new hasn't quite figured out all of the details yet. Like They still have a lot of questions and things that they're trying to iron out. And this could be a great opportunity for you. That's not necessarily a bad thing because you may get to shape the strategy and have first dibs on what a future location may be or what the future offerings of that brand might be. However, it also means that you're coming along for the ride and there Mm -hmm. may be some bumps along the way. A friend of ours owns a handful of boutique fitness studios that do spinning and uh, infrared saunas. And she's been able to expand to several locations really quickly. Why? Because she was one of the first people to do it. And she's consistently delivered on the proof of concept in this particular Atlanta market. And So obviously the franchisor values her and says, hey, you know the market, you know the customers, let's do another one. They're going to want to do business with her a lot quicker than trying to find someone else that they're going to have to train.
1: And she's also been able to form partnerships with uh, wealthy individuals and sports teams and retail locations. And those partnerships help her offset some of the launch costs, right? They could want to buy in, they could be want to what they could want to be investors, they could take up a bulk of the appointments, because they needed to train anyway. So she's just able to be more strategic than like a normal franchisor who only has one box versus like an expansion.
0: Right. And, and, and I think it's fair to say, like on the downside, it's very similar to when you're the first person to buy a home. Doesn't mean that there's never going to be a problem. So it just means that you're the first person to figure out all the problems right right? and so you're the first one to find them and to have to fix them unfortunately but again once you get over that hump now you are equipped with all of this knowledge all this insight that you can then use to make building the second one or opening the third or the fourth one so much easier and quicker and it just makes you a much better owner operator so um moving on to the other example right Let's say we're talking about a franchisor that is highly experienced. They are mature, if you Uh will, and they already have answers to every single question that you have. They have systems and solutions and trainings for everything that you have. The downside to that is they're likely more selective. Right, like they can afford to charge a premium for all of this information because, like, they know exactly what to do and how to build this business. I think the best example that I can think of is Chick Fil A because you always see these articles about people saying, "Oh, did you know it only costs ten thousand dollars to own a Chick Fil A?" And I'm like, "Yeah, great," but that doesn't mean that it's easy to get a Chick Fil A (laughs) -A franchise. It's actually one of the most difficult franchises to get. They are extremely selective.
1: You were better off running selected. for political office.
0: Might as well run for president. <laughs> yeah. Like, It is impossible. Don't even try. If Chick-fil-A is on your list, just (laughs) take it Go work at one for
1: like four years, and then maybe they'll listen to you. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe.
0: Like, they are super selective. And that's not a knock on Chick-fil-A, because we know several people who work for them. Mm -hmm. And heck, I'm being honest. I was pretty close to working with Chick-fil-A, right? But it is a very, very different company. Uh, Their brand and the way that they operate it is very... um, Unique, if you will, right? And that's what makes them special. Like
1: now you don't want to use culty.
0: Oh, I don't want to use culty. I could be offensive.
1: It's delicious. It is delicious. Our son's going
0: to have Chick-fil-A tonight. <laughs> All right. But my point here is to say, like, there's there's a trade-off, right? You can work with the new guys, and you're willing to ride it out with them and learn along the way. Or you're going to be willing to pay a premium and work with the seasoned franchises, yeah. the Marriott's of the world, the Hilton's, the Chick-fil-A's. Like, they are charging you a premium because it really, really works. You're basically yeah. buying a business model in a nutshell. Now, on the other side, you've got these companies that are on the tail end, and You know, those I would just have to say kind of pick and choose and be wary because like they're a little older and and you're kind of signing up for a different fight. Like you're the person that's trying to say, hey, man, like this, this brand is still relevant or this still tastes delicious. You should really give it a shot or you're trying to introduce it to other people. And sometimes you might actually be finding a really great deal there. I think your better shot might be actually finding an existing business, seeing it as something fundamental off that more mature brand that you can tweak some new thing that you can add to it that might allow it to be a little bit more profitable. And that might be uh, the way that you get into it. So it just kind of depends on where they are at the business life cycle. And I think those are kind of the three different ways that you can look at it, kind of the newbies, the more mature ones, and then the older dogs that kind of need some fine tweaking.
1: Yeah, I think ultimately it's a personal choice, but it's one that you want to think about in advance based on your temperament and the goals that you have as a business owner. I think sometimes when there are so many systems and guidelines, it can feel a little bit like paint by numbers, right? You don't feel like you own a business as much as you are just the manager of somebody else's business because you don't. Yeah, it feels like a job versus like the business that you own, you know? And I can think of very specific situations in our past life where, you know, imagine you meet someone who would be an excellent customer service rep for you, but you can't hire them because they have purple hair or visible tattoos. And that's just against the brand guidelines. And it leads to conflict, like Julian was saying. So it's just something to to think about. Yeah. So the fourth and my personal favorite thing to consider are the perks So sometimes the perks of the deal can outweigh the performance, the underlying capabilities, and the track record of the leadership team. So an example of this would be, let's just say you so happen to have a great relationship with a few people on the local city council. Wink, wink. Well, through this relationship, you learn that the city is looking to grow in an underdeveloped part of town, and they're looking to provide tax breaks to entrepreneurs who are willing to bring business into that area. Well, the value of that perk and those tax breaks could be the thing that makes your business profitable. Yep. And so that could outweigh all of the other sort of red flags or considerations that we've listed you know, for the first 30 minutes of this episode. And when you're talking about franchise businesses, relationships are key to finding all of those small perks and even the larger ones. You may not know anybody in your local government, but maybe your college buddy can get you a discount on flooring or maybe your cousin runs a small digital marketing agency that can help you get the word out. Anywhere that you can spare expenses or reduce the effort that it requires to get customers really helps to boost the bottom line and make these deals worth it when they're when they've got shortcomings in other areas.
0: That is so real. I think one of the best things that you can do is is again like not just seek the counsel of the person who's in business development or working for the franchisor or, or even just franchisees, but other people, just as try to predict the future to the best of your ability, because those are oftentimes the bigger things that are happening that can really set the tone for the profitability of a particular business. Okay, last but certainly not least, the fifth thing, even though I feel like we might have given like 10,
1: <laughs> we the fifth that. category, <laughs> um,
0: and, and probably the most obvious one is ROI. What is the return on investment if you were to actually try to open a franchise? Every industry has a handful of key performance metrics that allow people to compare the performance of one brand or one business to another. And along those lines, every franchise is legally required to provide uh, the anticipated cost to build and operate that particular brand. And it's all rolled up in this document called the Franchise Disclosure Document, or FDD, the FDD is huge. <laughs> it's like a hundred <laughs> pages minimum. Um, and it provides like a really clear picture of how that business relationship will work between you and the franchisor and the outline of what kind of support that they will offer and how much is going to cost you. There are 23 sections to the FDD and you get at least 14 days to review that document thoroughly before signing or exchanging any money with the franchisor so why is it legally required well because this is the united states and it happened one too many times and people ended up getting burned and so now the government requires these documents to be reviewed and issued so that franchisees have some time to weigh the pros and cons and thoroughly evaluate whether or not this is something that they want to do Most most franchisees also do two other things let me say that again really savvy franchisees also do two other things to make sure that they get a really clear understanding of what the future or potential return on investment might be for that property uh, or that project or business. And the first one is called a feasibility study. And it's basically a really complex study uh, that allows you to determine how feasible opening this particular business in that area uh, might actually be. So it's like looking at a wide set of data from sales to uh, the anticipation of future deals, population growth, traffic. Patterns, you name it, like all of those things. This is like a supplementary study. Think of it done
1: by a third party. Done by a
0: third party. So I would liken it to what an appraisal is in real estate, where yes, the builder may tell you that this is what it's worth, but you really want to seek what an appraisal uh, or see what an appraiser might do to see, well, actually, well, this is what they think. It could be more, it could be less, but a feasibility study is typically something that really seasoned potential franchisees will conduct. Uh, just to make sure that what they're doing uh, has a likelihood of actually churning out the kind of income that they believe. And in some cases, they may also evaluate the second one, uh, which is called a PIP which is another acronym for property improvement plan. You hear a lot about this in hotels, but you also hear about it in restaurants. And it's very similar to real estate because ultimately a lot of franchising is about real estate. You're going to buy this location, you're going to buy this land or this building, and you're going to build something on it, or you're going to renovate the existing property. And what a, what a PIP does is, is it basically quantifies. They look at, all right, this is what the brand is saying is required. These are the things that you must have. This is how much it's going to cost you. And then you're looking at the existing property and saying, well, this is what's already there and what needs to be replaced. And so the PIP says, all right, you can keep this, but you've got to spot this out. You can keep these things, but you've got to completely gut and renovate all of those things so that you have a really clear understanding of how much it's going to cost you to build or renovate a building. And obviously, considering building and renovation is going to be one of the most expensive upfront costs, this is what's going to help you determine whether or not the return on investment is worth it or not.
1: Yes, I think even though you're paying for access to this proprietary process and trademark, a franchise is like any other investment. There are no guarantees, which means you really have to do your own research and weigh the pros and cons. And the FDD and some of the other uh, feasibility studies and PIPs that Julian mentioned is really the only way to do that. By the time you're done evaluating the deal, you should be able to say it's going to cost me X thousand dollars to build it another Y thousand dollars to operate it every year. But it's also going to earn me this much every year and grow at this percent. And in this many years, I should be able to take this much money home on a regular basis. Right. Like that's the paragraph you want in your head as you're done evaluating. And there's obviously tons of details <laughs> underneath all of but those. That's numbers, what but, to. but you get my point. Exactly. And it's also worth noting that in the FDD, there is an explanation on the renewal, transfer and termination process in terms. So it's equally as important to be thinking about your exit plan and how difficult it will or won't be upfront before you sign any deal.
0: Yep. This is actually, for me, like a really great reminder of why I do not own a franchise.
1: <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's a lot of it's work. It's a
0: lot of work. It's a lot of trust.
1: You, you, yeah. It's, it's beneficial to partner with someone who has done it before, or make it your business to learn how to do it really well.
0: Yeah, and if I did, I might decide to own, but definitely not operate. Yeah. So you can be the owner, you can be the investor, but do I want to be the person that's every there every single day? Yeah. At my big age, absolutely. Not. <laughs> No, thank you.
1: All right, final thoughts. All right, let's do it. So, I, this was a really good episode because as we were talking, I started remembering all the people I know who have bought into a franchise while they were working their nine to five. Oh, yeah. Like I never think about that as a side hustle, but this episode it could be reminded me that it could be.
0: And we're a little spot cuz again yeah. we worked in the business so we knew a lot of people Yeah, which is a very typical tactic. We were getting ready to do that as well. I was like what better way to learn the business than to go work in the business? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I just think that too often when people think about business ownership, they think about it As coming up with this big idea that doesn't already exist, and that's just really short-sighted. Simply widening the span of possibilities and thinking about all the ways to become a business owner without having to do all of the work up front by yourself is another viable path to... You know, diversifying your income sources.
0: Speaking of viable paths or alternatives, (laughs) you don't have to do this. You could simply own the stock. And I hate to sound like one of those people that's like, oh, if you're gonna buy the burger, then buy the stock. But that is certainly an option. If you believe the brand or the business is so amazing, You don't have to spend tens or hundreds or millions of dollars to actually build one yourself. Like While that might be lucrative for you, you could also just consider buying the stock if you believe that much in it. The second thing I would say is that if the day-to-day life isn't for you, then you might want to consider getting a management company. Again, very similar to… real estate investing. Like this is why these kind of intermediary organizations exist. And while they are another line item, another budget item, they also like help you have a higher quality of life. Mm-hmm. Um last thing I'll say is that those early years, I don't care who you are, mm-hmm. those early years are tough. Some of the most impressive multi-million dollar hotel owners that I know, that we know, started small. They started out with a motel. They graduated from a motel to a budget hotel, from a budget hotel to a limited service hotel. (laughs) And even when they got to that limited service hotel, they built that thing out. It had 150 rooms, but they never had 150 rooms to sell. Mm -hmm. They were only selling 147. Why? Because they lived in the hotel.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They
0: lived on the first floor because they gave them direct access to their back office. Mm-hmm. They lived, you know, their family lived in the second room, etc. So this is very, very typical. It's not as simple and easy as some of these. This is all you need to own a business. Yeah. Articles that you will see online. Take it from us. We've been in this business for, like I said, 20 years. And so if I'm lying, I'm crying or whatever the saying <laughs> Flying. is. Flying. Flying. <laughs> I'm not lying. So it doesn't matter.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the rich and regular podcast presented by success. If you like what you heard, please take a few moments and leave us a five-star rating and review on the Apple ratings and review page. We will see y'all next week.